for understanding the book of Revelation. You know, all too often, Revelation is ripped away from reality, and these introductory messages are separated from the visions of Revelation, leaving us with no understanding of the visions. And that's why it's so important that we remember that these seven individual messages or letters were written not only to tell us what our Lord commended and condemned in the churches, but to also give us insight into the conditions that existed in Asia Minor in 95 A.D., conditions that gave rise to the Revelation. This morning, however, we do want to focus for a time on the fact that the church in Thyatira was commended for being a loving, faithful congregation. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Now, as you've already seen, Thyatira was a prosperous town. While it wasn't a commercial, cultural, or governmental center, it did have the good fortune of being on a main Roman road and as such benefited from its location. Since there was a steady flow of travelers and merchants through Thyatira, it became a town of merchants and craftsmen. And while our sources of information about life in Thyatira are limited owing to the fact that it was the least important of the seven cities, we do know that it was home to workers in wool, leather, linen, and bronze, as well as tailors, potters, bankers, and slave traders. Lydia, Paul's first European convert, was a seller of purple who had come from Thyatira. Whether the church there was founded by Lydia after her conversion or had been mothered by the church in Ephesus, we don't know. All we know for sure is that there was a church in Thyatira, and it was highly commended by our Lord. However, even before we get to his commendation, let's get that right, commendation, we do get the feeling that all is not well in Thyatira, because Jesus speaks to them as a son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Now, these aspects of his nature, taken from John's initial vision of the glorified Christ, seem to speak of discernment, judgment, and a strong stand against evil. But before we find out what our Lord has against the church, let's look again at his commendation. He said, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Our Lord knows their deeds, and he praises them for their love and faith and service and perseverance Now, whether these are four 
commendable qualities or two qualities stated and then illustrated, we can't be sure. You know, some distinguish four different qualities here. Some even make it five by adding deeds to the list and then conclude that Thyatira had more commendable qualities than any other church in Revelation. Others suggest that their service was an expression of their love and that their perseverance, the result of their unquenchable faith in God. But either way, they're very commendable. Especially when you read that their deeds of late were greater than at first. That means they were growing. They were maturing. They were reaching out. Their love hadn't died. Their deeds demonstrated a growing relationship with their Lord and a desire to share Him with others. In short, they were a loving, faithful church. But, as we've anticipated, there was a problem in Thyatira. And it was a big one. For the church there tolerated a genuine Jezebel. Verses 20 through 25. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have Hold fast until I come. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, it's doubtful that this woman in the church at Thyatira was actually named Jezebel. For the name Jezebel had become a synonym for seduction, idolatry, and immorality. But by calling her Jezebel, our Lord makes a clear statement about her character, and no doubt the church knew who he was talking about. The original Jezebel was the infamous pagan wife of Ahab, who was one of the worst kings Israel ever had. When Ahab married Jezebel, he allowed her to bring Baal worship into the nation, and in doing so opened the floodgates of idolatry and immorality. You may recall the confrontation Elijah had with the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Those prophets, along with another 400 prophets of the Asherah, were all personally supported by Jezebel. When she and her household were finally purged from the land, Jehu declared it was because of her harlotries and witchcraft. Well, apparently, a woman in the church of Thyatira 
was following in Jezebel's footsteps. Now, exactly who she was or where she came from, we don't know. Some have suggested that she was the preacher's wife. But surely, that can't be true. <laughs> Whoever she was, she had managed to establish herself as a prophetess, claiming that she heard directly from God. And she had begun teaching things in the church that actually led some into flagrant sin. Specifically, she had been leading them into acts of immorality and the eating of things sacrificed to idols. Now, we understand what is meant by acts of immorality. She was teaching that sexual sin was no big deal. Eating things sacrificed to idols, however, is, is foreign to our experience. At least, I hope it is. Marilyn and I love Thai food, particularly Penang curry. And last week, we were trying out a new restaurant when, after noticing the little oriental shrine near the door, Marilyn said, I sure hope we're not eating meat sacrificed to idols. Well, I assured her we weren't, and I certainly hope I'm right. Besides, Paul did say that we could eat anything set before us without raising questions about it if no one was making an issue of it. So unless someone finds it particularly offensive, other than those who just don't like Thai food, I guess we can still have our... Penang curry. But as we've seen and seen before, immorality in eating meat sacrificed to idols was a big problem in the early church. And it was encouraged by the Nicolaitans. So this Jezebel had no doubt been influenced by their heresies. Now you recall that this pseudo-Christian cult had been completely rebuffed at Ephesus, but it managed to work its way into the church at Pergamum. Well, here in Thyatira, it had accomplished even more by gaining a position of real influence in the church through Jezebel. Now, the circumstances that made it possible for her to gain a following can only be surmised. Apparently, the church in Thyatira hadn't come under much persecution yet. We know there was no temple for Caesar worship in Thyatira. And while it did have several pagan temples, they really weren't very in influential in and of themselves. There was, however, a situation in Thyatira that could have made Jezebel's teaching extremely attractive. As mentioned earlier, Thyatira was a town of merchants and craftsmen. And we've discovered from ancient inscriptions that it was also Therefore, a town dominated by trade guilds or trade unions. Now, again, in and of themselves, that did not present a problem for the Christians. The problem was that each guild had a patron god, and the guild meetings most often were held in pagan temples. The meetings would begin with a common meal featuring meat sacrificed to the god of the guild, and then most often end in a drunken orgy. Now, obviously, this created a problem for the Christians living there. In order to make a good living in Thyatira, you had to belong 
to a trade guild. And membership in a guild mandated attendance at guild meetings. So they had to go to these meetings if they were to stay in business. Now, some Christians, I would imagine, chose to give up their businesses because of the evil associations that were required. Others probably went to the meetings but tried to maintain a Christian standard while there. You know, can't you see them brown-bagging it, you know, carefully watching what they drank, and then leaving before things really got out of hand? That would keep them in the guild, but it would no doubt ostracize them from the majority of guild members. Well, sure, there had to be a better way to deal with this, at least awkward situation. Jezebel had an answer. She told them to go ahead and participate in everything that it really didn't matter. Now, as a Nicolaitan, she had bought into the Gnostic heresy that declared deeds done in the body couldn't hurt the soul. That since the only things that really mattered were spiritual in nature, what you did in the flesh was of no importance. Believe it or not, that led to one of two extremes. One was that the body should be abused and its legitimate needs ignored. The other more prevalent one, and the one she endorsed, was that every physical desire could and should be fulfilled. Apparently, she even went further and encouraged Christians to know what she called the deep things of Satan. She probably argued that the only way to conquer evil was to know it, to experience it. And the deeper you got into the things of Satan, the stronger you could become. She therefore encouraged Christians to go to the guild banquets, to eat the meat sacrificed to idols, and to take part in the immorality, to experience the depths of sin, but not to be overwhelmed by it, to remain Christians in their hearts, while acting like pagans. She taught that really mature Christians could do that, that they could participate in the deep things of Satan and actually be strengthened by their experiences. Now, I trust we're appalled by that teaching. But yet I wonder if we don't sometimes accept that kind of thinking without thinking about it. You know, our society tells us that certain things are for mature audiences only. That children shouldn't witness graphic portrayals of violence, be exposed to excessive profanity, or watch explicit sexual activity. Yet those who are mature are encouraged to be entertained by such. I'm afraid too many Christians have been deceived into thinking that they're mature enough to fill their minds with garbage and be unaffected by it. Or worse, to assume they're stronger Christians because they've been there and done that. That's the teaching of Jezebel. And our Lord called upon her to repent of it. In fact, he says he had already given her a time to repent. Perhaps he had spoken to her earlier 
through a personal letter from the Apostle John. But she didn't want to repent of her immoralities. She enjoyed it. She liked the freedom to do whatever she wanted to do and the popularity she gained as a prophet who said people could do what they wanted to do, what they wanted to hear. So she refused to repent. And the church didn't take any action against her. It was therefore time for Christ himself to act. And he began by declaring that he was about to cast her on a bed of sickness to apparently make her physically sick and to bring great tribulation upon those who committed adultery with her. Now, he doesn't specify if the adultery was physical or spiritual. But either way, the consequences are the same. Infidelity to our mate or to our God comes under the judgment of God. And he will act. He guarantees it. He then says in verse 23 that he will kill her children with pestilence. Now, her children can also be viewed physically or spiritually. Her spiritual children would be those who accepted her teaching and became like her. And most commentators feel that's what he's talking about here. But it seems strange that he would punish her spiritual children more harshly than he would punish her. She was to get sick, but they were to die. Others, therefore, maintain that God is actually threatening to kill her children because of her sin. Now, that sounds shocking, but it's not without precedent. God punished David for his adultery with Bathsheba by the death of their child. Whatever is in view here, it's at the very least a visible chastisement that not only the church in Thyatira would witness, but one that all the churches would see. All would be made to realize that Christ searches the minds and hearts and gives to each according to their deeds. And he does so now as well as in the future. He's not only going to judge us someday, he is actually judging us now. That's why we have to be aware of the possibility of God's chastisement when things are not going well for us or in the lives of others. Now, that's not to say that every evil that befalls us is a chastisement of God. Many things that happen to us are simply the natural consequences of living in a fallen, sinful world. But we should search our hearts when tribulation comes to make sure God's not trying to call our attention to something. I think this is very important. When bad things start happening, we should stop and 
honestly go before God and say, God, are you trying to get my attention? Are you trying to tell me something? Are you bringing discipline into my life? He can do that. He said, as a father loves his son, so would he discipline us. So there's a real possibility that he's bringing discipline into our life by the things that happen. But not always. Sometimes it's not. And we really can't tell the difference. But I'm convinced that if we will honestly go before God and say, God, is there something I'm to see here? Something I'm to learn from this experience? He will reveal it to us if we ask in faith. He's not disciplining us in a blind box. He wants us to know if that's what he's doing or not. If after giving prayerful thought to it and examining our heart, we come to the conclusion that no, there's not something that we're being disciplined for, I think we should then simply assume that God has allowed it to happen and our role is simply to give him glory by the way we respond. Trusting that he can bring good out of every circumstance of life if we love him and are called according to his purposes. Paul gives us that promise in Romans 8, 28. In this circumstance, he was, however, about to make it clear that he was moving in judgment against Jezebel and her followers. He was condemning them for their acts of immorality and for eating things sacrificed to idols. Now, for the rest of the church, he said he placed on them no further burden. What he means by that, we're not really sure. But it could very well be a reference to the fact that he had already placed prohibitions against immorality and the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. And he had done so through the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, recorded for us in Acts 15. So what she was encouraging them to do is something he had explicitly told them through the apostles and elders not to do. It wasn't something in that gray area out there. They were disobeying express command from God's apostles. He'd already told them that. What he could be saying then when he says nothing further, he could be saying that it really wasn't necessary for the church to go further than that, to, to cut off all associations with the society in which they lived, that perhaps it wasn't necessary to pull out of the guilds. If the church was to be salt and light in the community, they had to be involved in the affairs of the community. They could not, however, compromise on the matter of knowingly eating food offered to idols, nor in sexual Morality. They had to draw the lines of participation in the things of the world where the Lord had drawn them. And they couldn't cross those lines, even if it did make them uncomfortable or unpopular or hurt their business. They were to hold fast to what they had, what they knew to be true. They weren't to be intimidated by the world. After all, it wasn't the world that was to judge the church, but the church that would judge the world. 
And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, Christians are so easily intimidated by the wisdom and power and authority of this world. We have such a hard time remembering that it is we who will ultimately have authority over the world. If we're faithful to our Lord in this life, we will sit with Him on thrones of judgment, passing sentence on all who refused to listen to our Lord as He tried to speak to them through us. That's why Paul was appalled that the Christians in Corinth would go before unrighteous judges to solve their disputes. He said, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then he even added that we would also judge angels. The day is coming when every knee will bow before the Lord. And he will rule over the nations, the unbelieving masses, with a rod of iron. His shepherd's rod will become a means of destruction. And the wicked will be broken in pieces. And those who have been faithful to him, who have overcome the world and its temptations, will share with him in that rule. We will be allowed to share in what he does, in his rule and in his glory. He says, to us will be given the morning star. Now, whether that's a reference to Christ himself, as in Revelation 22:16, or simply a picture of his transcendent glory, we can't be sure. But either way, we're being told that we will share in the glory of our Lord. The glory of Christ himself will be given to us. And together with him, we will reign forever and ever. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Don't let the world intimidate you. Don't feel that you have to compromise to get along. Where he has drawn the line... Stand there and go no further. You're not being judged by the world. You're going to judge the world. If you're faithful. Surely, surely in view of this, we can overcome the temptation to yield to temporary pressures that society puts upon us to conform to its standards. Surely we can find the resolve to hasten to things that are higher and things that are nobler, the things of Christ. And if you've not already done so, 
to Christ himself. We get so caught up in the things of the world. We get so intimidated. We're fearful. And there are voices within the church that say, it's okay. Get along. Don't make waves. Now, there are times when making waves is just stupid. And the church is known to do that a lot. But there are times when we have to stand firm. If God has spoken, there we stand. And if there's a Jezebel among us, teaching otherwise, it's up to us to silence her. Or Christ will do it himself. And he'll bring judgment, not only on her, but on all those who commit adultery with her. That's the message. The risen Christ gives the church at Thyatira.